This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello, and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for The Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going good, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. It is a wonderful sunny day. It high is. of 70s. Going to be high of 80s tomorrow on Saturday. It was a gorgeous morning to deliver the paper this yeah, morning. Yeah, you were, you were up and about at the crack of dawn, getting out our new graduation issue this morning. Uh, yeah. Walk me through the graduation issue. It's it's something that we do every year, and it's kind of a cool uh, nod towards our graduating seniors across the county. How do we start the graduation issue, and, and what is it every year? Well, it was something that always used to be done by another publication in the county, and they dropped it. And we thought, like, it's a hallmark of hometown newspapers. It's something that kids and parents can look forward to and celebrate our schools. So we started this, I think, three years ago. And... Also, kind of our effort to support the Alumni Door County Network, which has kind of been a little bit on pause over the last year during COVID, but is an effort to connect Door County graduates who have either left the county or stayed here back to their schools and their hometown community. And so this was kind of a natural offshoot of that to like keep that connection going with the local schools and celebrate the, the students who graduated, especially over the the craziness of the past year and a half. Yeah, for sure. I, I actually, I feel like graduation ceremonies were more normal this year, weren't they? I know that they were all over the place in 2020, like drive through parades and boat stuff. And there was a lot of really interesting solutions to it. And they, and they did, a I think, a boat parade in Sturgeon Bay this year. Okay. A lot of them had limited participation, limited attendees for their graduation ceremonies. So not totally back to normal, but inching back to normal. Yeah, getting closer. Um, and the, the graduation issue kind of has uh, photos, names, but then also their post-graduation plans as well, right? Yeah. And I kind of talked about this in my intro to the issue this year is as I page through it and you look at those plans and I think back to when I graduated in 1997 in another century, Andrew, um, all those plans that you had, if you look back at like my graduating class, I wonder if even 10% of them ended up even completing the major that they thought they were going to complete or stayed in the work in the job they thought they were going to stay into or went to the tech school they thought they would go to or just traveled the way they thought. I mean, you think of those plans and, and we, we put that pressure on high school. They're like, got to figure this out. Like you're actually going to do that for the rest of your life. And in that intro, I was just like, it's, it's good to see that. It's good to put it down. But like six months from now, it's going to seem like such a hard decision to change and change your direction for, for a lot of those kids. And then a month after that, you're going to realize Oh, that wasn't actually so bad. It's fine right. to change. Life yeah. changes. Take me back, uh, Miles. Take me back to your post-graduation plans. It was the the height of the late 80s. You had your Sony Walkman <laughs> strapped to your belt. Uh, what were your plans straight out of school? Well, late 90s. I'm not quite that old, Andrew. But, you know, when I graduated high school, I thought I would go to a, a huge Big Ten school and study journalism and be a sports journalist and just get to cover all the sports that I always loved. And I did some of that. I did go to UW-Madison and quickly found out that like sports journalism was filled with a bunch of bitter former high school athletes or maybe guys who were bad athletes. And it really wasn't what I thought it was. 
Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's also that stigma, too, that, like, high school coaches are made up of, you know, disgraced high school or college athletes who who didn't make it into the big leagues, so now they coach. I know that that's not the case, but that is the, no, that's the a, stigma. that's a fair of amount it. of them. I, I mean, I was a high school coach, and that was a fair amount of my colleagues, yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I didn't want to— Maybe not even college uh, athletes. I'd say, like, high school athletes or people who— inflated their high school achievements. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, peaking in high school. I definitely feel like that, that was me for sure. My, my <laughs> post-grad plans were, I was going to go to college and I was going to get a degree in theater. And then I was going to make my way into the twin cities theater scene. And I did that for six months after graduating college. And then we were like, Hey, let's move to door County. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, plans can change kind of on a dime. And instead you are a contributor and editor for a local newspaper. You are still involved in theater in many different ways, both through the high schools and in a lot of the coverage and, and things you've done. And you still pursued some theatrical of those components, but now you're also doing podcast recording, audio recording, filming, filmmaking. I mean, it's part of who you are. Yeah. We, we say this all the time in the podcast, but my experience in college, even though it's not directly translatable to what I'm doing now, it definitely is still a part of the DNA that makes up my work. So uh, even though you may not end up in the job that you thought you were going to, you know, every experience is important. Yeah, exactly. Like you don't know that what you're doing in a given moment is going to contribute to something later. And you maybe never like tangibly know that. But like I, people ask me about what helped you in journalism. I said bartending. It's one of the best things I ever did in terms of contributing to what I do now. It's not part of any journalism school, but it's where you learn to listen to people's stories and appreciate people from all walks of life and take them for who they are. And it really opened my eyes and, and the value of all the people in your community. So I think that plays a huge role in how I now report on our community. And so you never know what little thing that you're doing is going to build you into the person you might be 5, 10, 15 years later. Right. So the graduation issue is out today and I encourage everybody to check it out. There's a lot of cool stuff in there. I wanted to talk a little bit about just one little news story and then maybe a larger topic that you and I can kind of dig into a little bit. Uh, so let's kind of let's do a little bit of news and then we'll jump into our topic for this episode. One thing that I wanted to talk about, I saw plans for a second one barrel location in Sturgeon Bay and the plans look really interesting. Walk me through kind of what this proposal is. Well, Sturgeon Bay, as we all know, has been looking to develop that West waterfront area for at least in in earnest at least like nine years and in some of those original plans for the west waterfront back in 2012 a brew pub type of complex there was part of those early plans and in fact i think one of those early plans called for that to be part of the granary and of course there's been all those lawsuits and all the you know there's a the hotel proposal a lot of fights in sturgeon bay over what happens on that property but now one of those things that has been proposed is the owners of one barrel peter gentry and his wife jennifer have proposed a, a large indoor outdoor venue somewhat similar to the their location in Egg Harbor, but this one would also have like kind of a rooftop seating area. Yeah, it'd be a two-story building. Yeah. And I, I was kind of drawn to just the architecture of it in that it reminded me of the Crest Pavilion in Egg Harbor in that it has that kind of, uh, that like squared off lower level and then the upper level with kind of the the almost greenhouse effect with the the windows and then the walkway around it. Like it, it kind of reminds me architecturally of that. Yeah. And I mean, these are always early plans. So I wouldn't speak too much or put a ton of stock in like, all right, that's what it's going to look like. Um, these are usually conceptual plans to get a, approval for a general idea and then 
those things can change pretty dramatically. But I'd agree with you. Yeah, it's got kind of that indoor outdoor vibe to it, a little modern, and it could be a really cool attraction on that side. The interesting thing that'll that'll be interesting to me anyway to watch is how the city supports this. What the owners have proposed is asking the city for a lot of investment from their TIF district into this project, something the city has done many times before. And also, even with the proposed hotel project, there was, depending on how you look at it, anywhere from like $1 million to $3 million in subsidies proposed for that project in terms of construction aids such as running utilities, water hookups, pilings that would need to go into that uh, filled lake bed, parking lot, construction of a parking lot, and then maintenance of a parking lot. The the owners of One Barrel have asked to be able to purchase that lot for just a dollar. So there's a lot of different incentives that are a lot of the same incentives that were offered to that hotel development that they're offering to this one. And for me, as like as a former restaurant owner, I would look at something like that and be like, all right, where's my subsidy then? You know, if you're an existing restaurant or like, say, if somebody came in and wanted to build a newspaper down the street here in Bailey's Harbor and went to Bailey's Harbor, the town and said, um, I'd like to buy this Nelson's hardware property for a dollar. And then I would like to have the town come and build most of my infrastructure and allow me to compete with the pulse. You know, like if you do that and you subsidize a new project like that to the tune of 500,000 or a million or $1.5 million, something like that, when other people paid their own freight for it. It's really easy if somebody covers your overhead costs to go out and pay more for their and take the employees from the other places. Like there's, I'm not saying that's what one barrel would do or is doing, but that kind of subsidizing of competition would scare me. The same thing that I didn't quite get when they wanted to um, subsidize the hotel there. Like you're trying to incentivize investment, but at some point you've already built the boardwalk. So isn't that when you build like the, the promenade and you invest a bunch of money in your promenade, I think in certain base case, that's going to be millions. And that's if you don't even count the lawsuits that have gone on and you've already built a maritime tower. Is that enough investment by the city to say, okay, people should want to build here? Yeah. I wonder if it is just a timing thing and trying to finally button up this project and have mm-hmm. that kind of landmark feature. You know yeah. what I mean? I, I, I can see where there's a desire to get this thing really kicked off and make sure you can pump as many cool things into it as possible so that you can like hang your hat on it and go, look, we, this is our new big feature. Yeah. And and this is something exciting. So I I get the incentives, but then I also wondered too, like I understand the the question of fairness and trying to, you know, in, in what incentives you offer a new business and that kind of stuff. But isn't there also a question of timing as well? It's like, well, you built 10 years ago. We, we didn't have this, the same incentives that we do now or the same project going on. So I don't know how that kind of fits into it. But then the, the, the flip side of that is like, Hey, I invested in you when nobody else would. And now you're subsidizing the people to compete with me. Shouldn't you be building me up? Like that would be the thing that I would be contemplating if I were another business in the town. And also, you know, like sister Bay, they've done some things. They've had districts as well. They've had land that they have sold for relatively cheap, but, you know, the, the main impetus there was, okay, we're going to invest $20 million in public amenities in the waterfront and the sidewalks and the pedestrian walkways and the beach and the marina. Basically, people should want to invest to be near that stuff. And we don't need to bribe them to be near that stuff. If you're going to invest, I'd rather my personal preference, and I know that this is what's being asked for is something that happens all over the country all the time. And so it's not uncommon. I'm not trying to paint one barrel in a bad light for asking for those things, because as a business owner, you, you should see what kind of things you can get. But 
if I'm a council member, the thing that I'm contemplating is like, why do that for this and not for something else? And are there better ways for us to incentivize? And I would say by building that beautiful promenade, I don't know if you've been down there yet, but by building that and by helping the Maritime Tower build what they hope to be a massive attraction, isn't, isn't that enough? Like, do you have to subsidize or do you just wait for somebody else to come in and invest in that parcel? So sure. like in Sister Bay, everything was foreclosed on. I shouldn't say everything, but a lot of the town was foreclosed on or, or close to it. And then they developed a waterfront into a public amenity for everyone to use, locals and visitors. And then the businesses invested across the street. Al Johnson's Lure, Chop, Door Hotel, Boathouse. That all came after because the city had or the village had built this thing that everyone wanted to be by. Yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying with that. I guess the last question that I have just on that same train of thought is, what is the flip side, right? So if you incentivize in this new development and then the the questions come up from the competition of being like, well, why not me? What is the flip side to that? Like what in what ways could there be uh, a more equal distribution of incentives? I mean, a purely capitalist mindset would be like, just compete, pay the market value and build it. Well, no, I meant like what, um, so if, if the town does incentivize a new development and then existing developments are upset, what could, like, what would be the flip side? Like, oh, well, we incentivize this, but we're also going to provide you this. Like, I'm what, is there a precedent for anything what like this, that? What the city usually says and what a community usually says or a municipality will say in a situation like that is this is going to raise all boats. So yes, we are incentivizing this particular project, but this is helping create this larger attraction that will spill over to everybody else. And there is some merit to that. Although like Alex Lazary, the vice president of Milwaukee Bucks stopped by this office a couple of weeks ago. He is running for Senate against, he's hoping to win the democratic nomination to run against Ron Johnson for the United States Senate. One of the questions I asked him is as a owner of a billion dollar franchise, like why did you need public incentives to build your stadium? And that's because most people don't know this. They think, oh, yeah, we have to subsidize stadiums because it's good for all the surrounding businesses. Almost every economic study will show you that subsidizing a stadium is a bad investment for a community, even though every major city in America has done it and done it multiple times because it's a massive giveaway to that franchise. And usually those are owned by billionaires. Many of them are owned by U.S. senators. <laughs> um, you, you give them their capital investment in their business, it's really easy to make money then. You know, you have to be a really bad businessman then to lose money if the city builds your your walls, basically, of your business. So didn't have a great answer for that. He's like, well, this is great. It's brought us the Democratic Convention. Milwaukee would have never gotten that. It's brought us an all-star game and all these other concerts and stuff. But I mean, the studies show that that doesn't pay off in the long run. Sure. So same thing with this. Like, I, I, I would wonder how many of these like TIF district projects like this actually pay off for the community in the long run versus the public amenities actually driving the payoff. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting discussion for sure. Especially if you're a nerd on public policy like me. So sorry right. for our listeners who just got bored to death. Well, we're, we're going to dig into something I think that is maybe a little more interesting to more people. And it's a question that I feel like comes up all the time. And it's something that I feel like people are thinking about a lot. But let's let's kind of dig into it a little bit, just kind of casually at this point, because there are some opportunities to dig into this more formally coming up. And we'll, we'll get into that. But the, there's a question that you know, it, maybe it's not surprising to anybody, but the question of are there too many tourists in Door County, right? Are there too many people coming up? Is it getting busier and busier? Are we at a breaking point? All those types of questions. And I wanted to just kind of, you know, like I said, casually talk about that with you and see kind of, you know, what you're thinking and, and maybe look at some historical precedent and to try to see where we're at just in terms of how many people are actually here. Uh, but let's, let's just kind of dig into it. I guess I'll ask bluntly, are there too many people in Door County? Hmm. I would say no. 
you know, and the reason, one of the reasons we talk about this, obviously, it's been a rising conversation for a couple of years, especially on social media, right? We, we've both seen all of that. Every time someone so much as proposes mowing their lawn, it becomes a huge controversy on Facebook and Instagram. But there's also going to be, Door County Environmental Council will have a forum on this next week. I think it's June 9th. Uh, I think it's a virtual forum to talk about over tourism in Door County. And it's something we always have to be cognizant about, obviously, with our, you know, our draw and the reason we live here is our natural environment. And then that drives our, a lot of our economic development, but also then our economic development takes away from that draw. So it's a really difficult thing to, to manage. Right. And then you have Destination Door County, which has said they're transitioning to a destination management yeah. organization versus a destination marketing organization. I think that that's, that's probably why this question is coming up maybe more right now or why it's a, a more opportune time to really dig into it is because of our primary marketing apparatus is, is making that shift. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, or saying that they're making that shift to management and what that actually means in terms of is it a pivot because of, you know, realizing we're at a, a different point or is it a pivot? You know, what does that pivot actually mean? Yeah. And in full disclosure here, I mean, it's also top of mind for me because I've been asked to serve on a, the search committee for Destination Door County's new CEO, Jack Moneypenny resigned last month. And they just asked me this week to be on that. So just so listeners know, I'm not a member of Destination Door County's board of directors or anything like that, but I'm kind of like a community member stakeholder asked to be in this search committee. Right. Nobody asked me, which I mean, I figured that a podcast host, maybe my input would be important, but uh, <laughs> it I'll, is. I'll let you, I'll let you. I mean, there's, and I've already reached out to some people because it's important to get a lot of people's feedback on this and, and honest opinions on it. But as part of that role, and you think about who you hire, it's what is this organization going to be and what does this role look like in the future? Back in 2007, when the room tax was put in place, it was very much focused on heads and beds. And that has kind of been the mantra, for better or worse, of Destination Door County for the last 14 years. And, you know, that question of is there over tourism? You know, we have a lot of anecdotal talk about this and we have a lot of people talking about it who I, I think are looking at this in the prism of, say, the last 15 years. You know, like 2007, probably the bottom of tourism here. I'd say like 2013-ish might be the bottom of that for like a certain community like Sister Bay and Egg Harbor, uh, Village of Egg Harbor. But if you look back, and, and Dave Elliott and I talk about this all the time, my hunch is that tourism now is only maybe it's back to or just a little bit beyond where it was in the late 1990s. I think a lot of people have forgotten just how busy it was in Door County at that time and how crowded it, it seemed at times. And um, just how far we fell in the years following. Um, I would say it started in like 2000 and probably continued dropping into 2007, maybe even into 2009. But it's, I'd still say like, I think of that late 90s as our peak. And that, that was a time when people just thought it was just going to keep going up forever. And then right. it dropped like a rock just right after that. Well, what was, what was the, the reason for the boom? What were people citing as like, this is why there's so many people here? At that time, People were just discovering Door County. And, you know, in the 80s, you had these things called um, these resort condominiums, kind of like timeshare developments being built because there actually weren't enough hotel rooms. You had to book like a year in advance. And basically, you, you came up and stayed your week in July. And when you left, you booked the next year's week in July to make sure you got a room. Right. That's not the case now, right? That was because there was kind of a shortage of rooms. There, there was this growing demand started in the... I would say like with the National Geographic article in 1969, sort of boosting demand that bumped up the population of Door County by about 5,000 people in the ensuing decade. Hasn't really grown since. Bumped up tourism a lot. 
You had more promotion going on and just more people discovering Door County in through the 1980s. Then because you didn't couldn't get hotel rooms, they were doing these Door condominiums where you could buy the room and get use of it for two weeks. And then you kind of could stand a profit on the rentals for the rest of the year. Kind of like a, you know, a little like people look at Airbnbs now. Yeah. And people would do that just to secure their time in Door County. And then as time grew on, we had, we developed a lot more motels. There were hundreds of motel rooms built in the 80s and thousands built in the 80s and 90s. There were 300 at the Landmark Resort alone. Even through the late 90s, you had things like Pheasant Park Resort, Scandinavian Lodge, Stone Harbor Resort, Bridge. Um, I'm, I'm spacing on the name of the other one in, in Sturgeon Bay, right at the, the foot of the bridge. The fact um, that you have that many hotel names in your head, just yeah. that, that's shocking as it is. Well, I mean... I was delivering pizza throughout the late 90s, so I was driving the roads of Door County a lot. So from 95 to 99, I was I was putting on thousands of miles a year on my, my car. So I had a, that anecdotal impression of how busy it was and how long it took to get places and also the, the data as, as being a business owner at the time. But it was swamped and we just thought it was going to grow and grow and grow. And it was because we were adding so many hotel rooms so we could accept more capacity. Then that boom ended. Like we stopped building hotels around 2000. And in the ensuing years and in the late 90s and the, the early 2000s, it became a lot of condominium development. And there was condominium development before that, but it really started to boom. And then people got scared about condominiums. Then you got really the high-end luxury condo market started coming in because people thought, okay, now we can cater to the people who want to spend a million dollars on a condo. A lot of those projects flopped early on. And then later were bought for much less than that foreclosure markets and things like that. Right. We'll get into the dip in the early 2000s because it's clear why there was the dip that we had. But I don't know. Why, this, is it clear? Why is it? Well, I'll, I'll answer that question in a second. I just had I wanted to get the timeline correct. So were we seeing a steady increase in people up here from the National Geographic to the 80s to the 90s? Was it a steady increase or was it peaks and valleys? I would say it was a pretty steady increase. It wasn't necessarily like the huge spike. The mid 80s, you had kind of a, a big push because that's when a lot of the development happened. You had like top of the hill shops, main street shops, country walk shops in Sister Bay. You had a bunch of development in these tiny towns like Egg Harbor had big open fields in the middle of it and those started to fill in and it kind of scared people. The The campground in Carlville was a big bellwether for a lot of people because it was a, a version of a water park at the time and people thought, well, we're selling out. So that mid 80s was a big spurt and then late 90s was a big spurt. Okay, so then... We hit 2001, that's uh, 9-11. Tourism kind of drops off a little bit just in general. Door County manages to stay pretty steady, though, because it's a drive-to destination for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you hit the recession, right, in that 2007, 2008 range as well. And that's kind of where we see our big tourism drop-off, right? And I w actually, I would say the tourism drop-off was pre-recession. It was, I, I think the bottom of it was 2000 through 2007. We had, because what, what started to happen is other places started to, go after that tourism market. You had like Lake Geneva step up their game. Michigan stepped up their game big time. Started spending a lot of money in yeah. the Chicago Tim market. Allen. Yeah, pure Michigan. And, and they're great ads. And they still run them today. The Northwoods markets started to push hard. There were a lot of different places. And then you had cities really reinvest in themselves and their downtowns to compete to keep people there and bring people into their cities. Milwaukee became a much better destination. Chicago became a much better destination. Madison added big convention facilities and, and other things and amenities. And even Green Bay, which Brown County was not a, a tourism competitor, except for Lambeau game days. And they built the atrium and they expanded the Packers experience. And people started to, to spend a lot of money and make 
the Brown County area, put that on their their box of, hey, I got to go there. I have to go see Lambo, and now I can go there anytime year round. It's not just a game day experience. And so that started to siphon off some of the tourism dollars. So Door County saw a lot of other people going after the same market while we were still spending $200,000 a year on marketing. And it just wasn't, we weren't able to keep up. Right. Incomes, room tax, and... And and we stopped investing in ourselves. We didn't invest a lot in public amenities at all up to that point. Sure. Room tax kicks off. We start investing a lot more money into marketing, and we see that steady rise back into where we are today. That's kind of the timeline of things, as I understand it. Yeah. Room tax finally gets put into place in 2007. It's in place in all the communities by... Might have been 2009 but for sure by 2010. And then there's a lot more money to market the county and the amenities. And that played a role for sure. But there's a lot of other things that happened at that same time with room tax. Like room tax increased our marketing ability, but I think we always underestimate how much it increased municipalities' willingness to invest in themselves. So you had places like go from like their standard budget where if you ask for money, they're like, well, we don't have any more. And then now they suddenly have an extra $100,000, $200,000, $300,000 a year coming back to them because the municipalities get 30% of all room tax revenue. And that's all coming back to them. So now they start investing in their parks and they start putting some of it. It's easier when somebody says, well, we want to do this improvement to our beach, but it's going to cost a million dollars. Well, when you suddenly have $200,000 a year that just kind of drops out of the sky for you as a municipality. Now you can start looking at that, that million dollars that just seemed impossible. Where are we going to get that money from? Now you can say, Oh, we can allocate that 30% of room tax money. You know, over five years, we're going to have a million dollars. Yeah, we can do that beach improvement. We can buy that property and double the size of our beach or double the size of our park or invest in new street lighting or benches or pedestrian walkways. There's all these things that suddenly, you know, landscaping, seasonal decorations. I mean, I, in the 2007 to 2010 range, I I wrote a couple of columns about like how we just had stopped decorating our villages. Like nobody was doing it anymore. And now you see it all. We have holiday lights everywhere. We have flowers hanging from light posts. Like we take it for granted, but that didn't exist. So we we started doing a lot of things to try and beautify our, our towns. And that played a huge role. So then that brings us to today. And I think there's two there's two distinct conversations here, and let's just pick one for time. There's the question of, you know, quaintness and development and that kind of stuff. And then there's also just the question of the amount of people that are here. And I, I think they are linked in a lot of ways. But uh, I think for, for this purpose, since we talk about development so much, let's let's focus on just people and how many people are here. And of course, there's, you know, Things that tie into that, like parking and, and wait times at restaurants. and But you have those problems everywhere you go, right? And, and they're exacerbated maybe in some areas of the county more than others. But in just raw numbers, in terms of how many people are up here, are we at a breaking point or is there still room to grow? I would say like our peak season, our peak season weekends are probably close to tapped out in Northern Door. I think there's probably a lot of room to grow in Sturgeon Bay. as And it probably has to in Sturgeon Bay in terms of like transitioning into whatever they become next as some of those old school industry jobs, even though Fincantieri is investing a ton right now, this shipbuilding industry is always an up and down industry. It's, it's hard to say like that's that's going to be very consistent for the next 20 years, right? Well, there, there is at least some level of commitment there in terms of their military contracts and that sort of thing, right? Like they, they are definitely saying that we are reinvesting in this industry for, you know, the next 
several years with those types of things. Yeah. And those always run out. Like Peterson Builders Incorporated was a huge shipyard for generations. And they were always after the next contract. Palmer Johnson was always after the next contract. And Finn Cantieri is always after the next contract. They get the winter fleet. But then when they don't get those additional contracts, you, you scale way back. It's happened several times in my lifetime where they've gone from 1,000 people and had to late do a bunch of layoffs. Um, Peterson Builders lost their Navy minesweeper contracts and closed in, I think, 1993. You know, that was it. So it, it can happen quicker than you think. Nobody was thinking that two years earlier because sure. they were at the peak. Sure. So Sturgeon Bay has that option. Like, there's, I don't think if you went there even on a crazy Saturday in the summer, for the rest of the county that you would feel like Sturgeon Bay is overwhelmed with people. So I think there's capacity there. You know, even in peak season, their occupancy rate in July and August is somewhere in the high 60s, low 70s. So they're not close to 100% bookings. Not that you should be. I'm not saying that, hey, we need to drive, 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 drive. But I'm just trying to put it in terms of both context historically, but also where the numbers actually put us. I think Northern Door, you could probably make that case that certain weekends in that July, August, and those fall weekends are pretty, pretty packed or as packed as maybe we want them. Like, could you say you could do more? Sure. But do we want more? I don't, I would maybe argue that, Hey, sister Bay is probably busy enough, right? Egg Harbor is probably big enough and busy enough. I think for most of the residents, maybe there's some that argue that we need to develop, 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 but like, do we want sister Bay to be a 2000 person community? Like that's a lot of infrastructure. Do we have to get bigger? Do we like being a small town? Right. Egg Harbor probably needs to be asking itself that same question. Yeah. And, and that's a sliding scale too, right? I mean, if you consider Sister Bay to be a small town in its current state, there are other people who think that like, oh no, the Sister Bay is nothing like it used to be. And that's when it was perfect. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of that. But in pure, like some people look, like, look at the room tax numbers. Well, the dollars kind of lie to you because it's not linear. Like we, we have higher end places. We have higher end restaurants than we used to have like 20 years ago. When I was operating Husby's, we were selling $2 Bud Lights. You know, now a lot of bars, they're still selling those, but they're selling a lot of $7, $8, $9 draft beers. They're selling a lot of $10, $12, $13 cocktails all throughout the county. So you're, you're hitting those numbers based on a much higher price point for almost everything. So you need fewer people to make the same dollars if they're purchasing, right? Same thing with our hotels. So many of the old school motel, like drive-in, bed, end table, simple shower. So many of those have been wiped off the marketplace, replaced by places that just charge a lot more. Even the door hotel is going to charge a ton more than a, a typical hotel used to. And so you have room rates that are just way higher. So it's not like the same number of people or, or like it's just more people and that's bringing in more money. It's you could make the case that like, hey, maybe it's the same number of people paying more for everything. Um, you know, there used to be like three or four higher end dinner places. Now there's, there's a lot of really nice higher end dinner and lunch places. You know, you used to go out and, and it was common to go get a five or $6 lunch. And now it, you'd be hard pressed to get a lunch for under $10, maybe even 15 in a lot of places. So all those things are a factor in how you look at room tax revenue. You got to look at the average daily rate. You have to look at the nights filled. Right. Well, then I think there's the other part of it too, is even if, if that were the case, if the number of people coming each year isn't actually increasing by a substantial amount, we've also done a lot of projects over the last couple of years to just increase our ability to have more people like, and, and this, maybe you'll disagree with me on this 
from some sort of nerdy technical standpoint. But when I look at the development projects that were done in the towns to increase walkability, expand sidewalks, those types of things, there's more room for people to be. You know what I mean? And where... 100%. Whereas like uh, walking through Ephraim five years ago was a completely different story, especially like 4th of July or Fear Ball. You'd have people like spilling out onto the streets to move up and down the place. And that's when it felt like, oh man, it's super congested here. Yeah. But now you expand those sidewalks, you make everything more walkable. That same number of people looks like there's a lot less because there's just more accommodating room for them to exist. Or maybe it looks more packed because those people are like, oh, there's ways for pedestrians to walk down the street without being in the street. We'll go for a walk instead of drive. You know? Sure. So maybe it brings more people out. Sister Bay also did the same thing. They People have already lost the context of this because we tend to not be able to think more than like last year. But it was only 2014, 15 that Sister Bay widened their sidewalks and added more pedestrian walkway space through the downtown, which helps for a lot of things. And that's something when I go back to municipal investment, we never talk about this in terms of like the growth of tourism either. We built the four-lane highway. That was only completed in 2006 while I was driving back and forth to UWGB for school. And that shortened that distance from, in just an average time, to get to Green Bay to Sturgeon Bay, shortened that by like 10 or 15 minutes on my commute. And on a busy time, making that a four-lane instead of a, a two-lane, you're shaving 30 minutes off the drive from Chicago. So that infrastructure, like you said, opens up the spigot a little bit more in terms of who can come here. And then each of these towns, think of all the road improvements that towns have glommed down to. So like Sister Bay, the State Department of Transportation comes through and redoes the highway in uh, around 2013, 2014. Sister Bay gobbles onto that and goes, okay, we're also gonna, we're gonna redo our sewer. We're gonna bury our power lines. That helps beautify the town. So they can kind of do some of that and, and get a discount on it by jumping on board with what the highway department was doing. Fish Creek has redone their downtown highways. Ephraim has redone theirs. Egg Harbor's going to redo theirs soon. Those investments also make a difference. Adding a third bridge in Sturgeon Bay and some of those amenities, those make a difference. So you can pretty easily get to about $50 million or more in just plain municipal investments over the last 10 to 15 years, plus the DOT's investment in our community, plus the nonprofit's investments when you look around Crest Pavilion, the Northern Sky Theater, Peninsula Players Theater, Third Avenue Playhouse, you add those up and you can pretty quickly get to 50 Ridges Sanctuary right on Door County, $50 million there. So you can easily look at about $100 million or more in municipal and nonprofit and attraction capacity built in Door County since 2007. Yeah. That's pretty wild for a community our size. And that's a big part in what we had to market. And then you had the recession, which is a hugely underrated factor in how we rebounded because that was a scary time. A lot of people left. A lot of places were foreclosed on. Um, a lot of people sold really cheap to get out. And that allowed new, and we've talked about this before, new innovative business owners to move in, open new types of restaurants, new types of bars, invest money in the community. And that gave us, when, you, when that happened at the same time that you had that municipal investment, in infrastructure and at the same time that you suddenly had money to market it so you could tell people about these cool new businesses you could tell people about wild tomato and door county brewing company and one barrel brewing company and let them know that this existed you can tell them about the beaches we built and expanded and you can send beautiful pictures of them out those things all came together at once it's really remarkably fortunate for door county that it happened the way it did yeah you you use the phrase 
kind of opening the spigot, which I like, but it, it, I feel like it paints a picture that like all of these improvements just allowed more people to come in and they did. But I also think that there was uh, an increase in the size of the bucket as well, right? You increase the size of sidewalks, expand beaches, uh, start kind of giving people more room to breathe. Then while yes, you can bring new people in for sure. You're also, it, it doesn't feel like there's as much, it, even if the same number of people come in from one year to the next, but you've expanded sidewalks and beaches and stuff, it's going to feel like less yeah, because there's more room for them. Absolutely. And I think one of the reasons we feel like things are so overwhelmed is because we all, you know, it's a small community. We know all the business owners. We hear them talk about how overworked they are and how they can't find staff. That's the one thing that, well, not the one, but it's the major thing that we didn't increase capacity for. So we have like declining school enrollment. We lost 500 high school kids in that time, which means we lost a huge chunk of our workforce. And then we, we had already switched to going after J1 um, workers back in 1995. So that wasn't a reaction to that loss, but it was, you know, we had switched to go, have to going after workers more. I mean, Al Johnson, I guess, has been importing workers for decades. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that point up because I think that that kind of gets us to the final question because it's not a question of are there too many people here? It's a number of questions about are there too many people here for and then fill in the blank, right? Are there too many people here for the amount of workers that we have to take care of them? I think that's, that's a valid question. question. Are there too many people here for, uh, are there too many people here that no one's going to want to come here anymore? Right. That's the other question. I, I find that funny on social media is like, it's too busy. No one's going to want to come there. It's like, that's kind of an oxymoron. It's the old Yogi Berra. Yeah. Like I don't go to the restaurant over anymore. It's too busy. Right. Yeah. Nobody goes to nobody the restaurant. Goes it's too busy. Yeah. So that's, that's that question too. I think there's a number of questions and I think that there are yes answers and no answers to them as well. It's a bigger question than just, are there too many people here? Almost all of us are new in relative terms. You know, like my family became permanent residents in 74, 73, 74, something like that. Most of the people that comment about this will even start their comment like, well, when I moved here in 2007, and it's now it's bad. It's like, oh, so 2007, it was okay to come here. And then it just stopped right there. Like after that, it was, it was not okay for anybody else to come and buy a condo or buy a property or build a house. Like your house was the last one that should have been built or your condo was the last one that should have been purchased, right? There, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of the old Norbly syndrome of, well, I got here and now the bridge should be up. Like Norb, you came here from Chicago too. Shut your trap, right? I love Norb, but come on. It was very hypocritical always with him. And I think we're all hypocritical in that. And I am too, because I don't like to see the change. And I'm sure someone a hundred years ago with his farm did not like to see the guy move in on the 41 mile down the road. Right. Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of the old adage too. I don't remember where I heard this, but somebody once told me that if you don't want somebody to move in next to you, you need to buy that plot of land too. Yeah. And, and that's kind of where it is. Like if you're drawn to a place for something, then you have to expect that everyone else is going to be drawn to that for the same thing. Right. I mean, that's also, that's the dangerous thing about being drawn to something for its quaintness, right? Yeah. Because if you love something because of how quiet and tranquil and beautiful it is, then multiply yourself by 10, 20, 100, 1,000 people. And it's like anything that is small and quaint and secret is inevitably going to be blown up. Because if you know about it, odds are other people do as well. Yeah. And, you know, last night I was doing my paper route and my, my route this week was up on the Ellison Bay Gills Rock Corridor. And I love doing that route when I, when I have to fill in. And you go out by Newport State Park, you go past Uncle Tom's Candy. I stop at the shoreline. I see Mike and Mary Mead there at the desk. Um, I Charlie Voigt comes out and grabs the papers out of my hands from Charlie's Smokehouse and you get to say hi. And you're like, this is, 
you go up to the ferry dock and there's the people, there's this trickle of people coming off the ferry who felt that they wanted to go all the way up to the island that day and now they're getting off. And it's so open and it's so beautiful up there and so quiet that I see that draw and that, and why people want to keep it that way. And it is 100% quaint. Now, if you, if you want to throw the quaint word out, that's, that's where you get up in Ellison Bay and Gills Rock. And I, I feel this urge to like put up a wall and just stop it and keep it and put that in a time capsule and be like, don't change this. All right. You know, keep everything in downtown sister Bay, keep it in fish Creek, keep it in Ephraim. Don't come and take this from us too. Cause it is just this great thing to remove to, but I don't know how to do it. So just like everyone, I feel that same urge to be like, to pick my spots where it should be. But meanwhile, I live in a house that was built in 2013, you know, like in 2010, when I left Door County in 2011, that was just woods in a field, you know, so I'm part of the issue as well. Um, I don't know how you stop it. I think it's, it is a very good conversation to have. And it's something we always got to be working toward it, that, that grappling with preserving what we are, but also having an economy. So like I'm 42 now, you know, it's nothing ticks me off more than 70 somethings, 80 somethings, 90 somethings saying, well, it had to stay where it was when I was here and screw you guys. Not that there's a lot of those people, but there is definitely that attitude from some who say like, it should stop now. It's like, well, you know, our generation wants to live here too. And we want to find a way to make a living here. And so we have to do that just the way you guys did when you opened your restaurants that weren't there when you opened them. You know, when you opened your shop that didn't exist until you built it, you moved into a home that didn't exist until you built that home. Like who is to say that the next person shouldn't get that opportunity? So it's a difficult, in some ways it's a selfish conversation. And sometimes it's a very caring conversation. It's a really weird one to have. Yeah. The other thing is if we're talking about over tourism, again, I feel like we're probably matching the peak that we had in the late 90s. But I also think there's a lot of this that's driven by COVID and that can be a blip. Just like in the late 90s, we thought it was just always going to go up and that we had to stop marketing and stop bringing people. And we did stop and then we fell off and then everyone started going bankrupt. <laughs> and I, I do fear like you really do have to have this. If you're going to have this conversation, you really have to base it on some data and really be careful about it because you could stop marketing. You could stop sending the message out. It's only a couple of years that we've actually been very busy. You know, like Sister Bay was still desperately trying to entice businesses to invest in 2015, 2016, 2017. It only really took off in the last couple of years. And how much of that is driven by COVID? I was talking to Josh Kopinski down the, down the road in Bailey's Harbor here, who just sold Bailey's Grove Campground. And he's like, yeah, we're up 160% this year, but that's COVID. You know, like how many yeah. of these people who bought RVs who love it for a year or two are still going to be doing that two or three years from now? How many of those people who have come to Door County in the last year, two years are going to step back and go, you know what? I miss Disney World. I miss the 150,000 hotel rooms in Vegas that have sat empty. I miss going to New York, Mexico, Europe, Puerto Rico. So this last year has forced all those people to come to us. And hopefully we've established new connections that create a new generation of visitor. But we're not going to keep all of them, you know, so you got to be careful about it because yeah. you don't want to be sitting here four years from now going, we got to re-up our marketing. We got to reestablish ourselves. We, we need more people. So, right. Well, and that's the thing. It's all about sustainability, right? It's all about finding the number that works for everybody uh, because 
On the flip side of all of this, if tourism were to decrease by 50% next year, I don't think anybody would be breathing a sigh of relief, right? No. Because while for a year you may be like, ah, now I can park right in town, I can go get right into my favorite restaurant, you're only going to be able to do that for a couple of years before all those restaurants close. Yeah, and then we're all going to be sad that we don't have the people. Right, we don't We don't have the, the people, we don't have all of the businesses that we have. If Without the tourism market, we don't have things like Door County Medical Center, right? We don't have things like Door Community Auditorium. And all yeah. these things that we love as locals being able to participate in here in our small community, they all go away without tourism. And then Absolutely. we've got our natural splendor for sure, but that doesn't pay the bills. Right? Yeah. We can't all become kayak tours. And, and so, so there's that I've, part of it. I, for one, do not want this to be a rich person's getaway. You know, like I don't I don't want to lose the place. And I feel in many ways we've lost so much of it. So it's like. It can't be the place that, that doesn't, it's not just for the rich people. Right. You know? And and I think the last thing too, on this idea of quaintness, 40 years ago, everything was quaint, right? Everywhere mm-hmm. you went, it was cute, small, mom and pop, all that kind of stuff. Now, many of those things are not quaint anymore, right? Sister Bay is not quaint. Fish Creek is not quaint. They're busy and they've got a lot of things to do and there's a lot of attractions to them. But there still are a lot of really quaint places. Like there are places where you can go well, and I mean, not see anybody else. It's just you have to pull yourself away from those icons now, right? Lighthouses. Yeah, but I would still say like I've, Fish Creek and Sister Bay are, would actually still fall in the definition of quaint, you know, as long as they don't become too homogenous. But like they're still quirky. They're still different. Yeah, you know, for sure. But I, I wouldn't say that they're like super small town, relaxed pace. Well, go don't, to the bar. don't don't uh, mistake quaint for quiet. Sure, but I feel like a lot of people do. Yeah, you know I what think I mean? you're, you're correct. You have to pull yourself away from some of those bigger draws, right? You have to pull yourself away from lighthouses, downtown areas, those types of things. You can still find, there's enough hiking trails in this county for everybody to go and not see anybody else. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like, there are places that you can go and, and feel like you're discovering a place for the first time, right? In, in Filmworks, we went out into parks and out into trails all the time. And that moment of discovering something and feeling like you're the first person ever to see it, you can still get that all over the place here. Yeah. It's just not going to be at, you know, it's not going to be in Sister Bay. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry if that trail that you felt that you had yourself that used to have five people a day now has 15 a day. That still doesn't make it overrun and unmanageable. You know, right. like, but there's that, another trail that you can find that is like the one that you lost. Yeah, right. Like, it, there's still plenty of that all over the place. It's just not the the big ones like it used to be. We also have to recognize that it, it's not that we don't we don't need to address these issues, but we're not unique in most of them. The housing problem is a problem in every city and tons of small towns all across America, and especially in every tourism town. Transportation is a problem in all those towns. Some of them have fixed it. Hopefully we can fix that too. The labor shortage is a problem everywhere. Parks being overrun. I know that people in some of the conservation movements would say like our our land trust properties and things are being overrun. There's, you know, the national parks are being overrun. We need to fund those things more. Right. Um, but exactly. That's what I wanted to get to is the solution to those problems, limiting the number of people who are right. There. Like if you want people to invest in this and continue to donate and continue to give their tax dollars to it, the best way to get them to do that is to get them to use those places, use them in the right way, but to experience them. We don't hold them for our core donor base or the people who we think deserve to, or just the volunteers. If you want the next generation of volunteers next generation of donors, next generation of people who support policies like that, like the Knowles Nelson Fund and other things, you need to get them there. 
Right. And you just got to teach them the right way to do it. So maybe we need to invest more money in the management. But that, the yes. answer is not to say you shouldn't go there. We shouldn't let people come to these places because hopefully all these people that have gone to the national parks over the last year will now recognize how important it is that we set those places aside so that they can go and enjoy them. And the same thing on a local level with our, right. our county parks, our state parks, our all of our public facilities. Well, you mentioned that like education and management thing. So Peninsula Filmworks did a lot of video work for Destination Door County when they first announced their shift to a management organization. Mm -hmm. And if you follow Destination Door County on YouTube or on Facebook, you've probably been seeing a lot of those videos lately. And that was the big push, at least in my production of those videos, is that we want to highlight these really cool areas, but we want to do it in a way that we also tell people how to preserve them and how to interact with them in a responsible way. Right. So when we, when we were targeting these more fragile environments and showing them to people, the immediate fear is like, if you tell people about this place and you promote it like an ad or, or a promo, then people are going to come here and it's going to be totally overwhelmed. So I always approach each one of those with like, tell me about this thing. How can people preserve this? How can people interact with it responsibly? Those types of things. And that was always the forefront of it. And I think that that is the key to a shift to a management organization, right? Continuing to promote what we have to keep bringing people in, but doing it in a way where it's communicated that these things are special and they're fragile. And while we want you to come experience them, we want you to be good stewards of them as well, because you're going to love them. You're going to love yeah. the things that you do and you're going to want to show your kids and your grandkids down the line. So it's your responsibility to help everybody keep them safe. Yep. You know, that ongoing management, that messaging, it's not like you do it once. You know, like when we do an event for the Peninsula Pacers, we have to repeatedly tell everybody who walks through the door how to behave, what the rules are. It's no different than driving. Everybody needs to be re-educated on the rules of the road all the time. And we still have bad drivers, even though people have trained in it and we have school classes in it, you know, like you still have to remind people, get off your cell phone, watch for cyclists. Cyclists deserve the road just as much as a car does. Like no matter how many times you tell them, you have to keep telling them. And that's right. the same thing with the management of our resources. Like we can never slack on that because, and, it, and we can't get frustrated by it. Like that's human nature. We always have to be re-educating. Miles, we are almost at an hour, and as is the law, if we go over an hour, the podcast board self-destructs. Yes. So uh, let's wrap it up. Really good discussion. I'm glad that we kind of got to to dig into it a little bit from a casual perspective. Plug that event, that virtual event that's coming up one more time so, so people is, can hear more. It is June 9th, Door County Environmental Council. They have an ad in the paper, and we have some information online that will give you the specifics. I don't have it on the top of my head, but it is June 9th, and it is a virtual panel. <laughs> Sweet. So uh, we'll continue to talk about all of this stuff in a lot of different ways moving forward because it is, you know, question on the top of most people's minds. But I'm glad that we were kind of able to to suss it out a little bit today. Just, you know, you and me in this room and all that we know. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad that we talked about it. And I hope that people find this useful, at least in kind of, I don't know, adding some context to their conversations that they're yeah. having with folks too. If we can do that, that's probably the best thing we can do on these things. Right. With that, Miles, thank you so much for chatting with me and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. 
We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.